You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about the history of science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on September 8th, 2021. Let's have a listen. Okay. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of uh, uh, History of Science and Technology Q&A. And I see I have a whole bunch of questions here. All right. Here's a, here's a tricky one. This is from Slayer. In my opinion, uh, who is the most snubbed scientist or inventor? Uh, Slayer says his would be or hers would be um, Rosalind Franklin. Okay. So this is a complicated question. What you know, you know, what causes scientists, inventors to be snubbed in some way? When people invent things and everybody ignores what they invented, what's going on? I think there are a couple of things to say. Uh, there are cases in which sort of once you understand something, you can go back and say, oh, people almost got that a long time ago, or people saw that phenomenon and well, they didn't really understand what it was, but they saw the phenomenon. And so maybe it was snubbing them to not pay attention to the fact that they saw the phenomenon. You know, I've just recently been, uh, in fact, hopefully it'll get posted tomorrow, uh, been working on kind of a, a, I think, rather important thing that's come out of our physics project that's sort of a, a new paradigm for thinking about modeling and theoretical science that I'm calling the multi-computational paradigm. And one thing that's interesting about it is I was trying to write the history of the multi-computational paradigm. I think I now understand what it is with some clarity. And now you can go back and look at the history and you can see traces of it over the last hundred years. And you can see many different traces in many different places, but they, are, they don't quite nail it. They don't quite kind of get the point of it. They get other points which have been relevant for lots of other things, but the full idea isn't really there. And there are cases where people have, there are some cases where people very clearly wrote the, 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 the full idea and people ignored it. There are, that I think is a more sort of valid case. And there are cases where people sort of got pieces of the idea, but then it wasn't really, one didn't have the conceptual framework to understand the idea until a lot later. I'll mention one. I mentioned Ada Lovelace. This is 1840s, um, and she's writing this uh, 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 kind of uh, commentary on Babbage's analytical engine. And she gives what I think when you read it today is a pretty decently clear description of kind of this abstract notion of computation and even kind, kind of the idea of universal computation. But at the time, it has no doesn't really get legs at all. In fact, even when universal computation was rediscovered back in the time of Alan Turing in 1936 and so on, and even, even well, even Alan Turing's original paper wasn't that notable when it first came out. But eventually kind of the, the tide of universal computation and all these different methods that ended up being equivalent became significant and computers started being built and so on. After that kind of thing had happened, people went back and saw oh, Ada Lovelace had figured out a bunch of stuff and had even said it quite clearly a lot earlier, but the world really wasn't ready for it at that time. 
I think you can go back even further in that question of universal computation, look back at Gottfried Leibniz and at his Characteristica Universalis, um, his kind of idea of a kind of uh, a universal language for expressing things and sort of read into that now all sorts of ideas about computational language and so on. You know, I, I have done the exercise, well, I've done it for both for Ada Lovelace and for Leibniz of trying to look at their original materials. I would say in the case of Ada Lovelace, at least viewed from a modern perspective, the original materials are quite clear. Viewed from a modern perspective, the Leibniz materials, as far as I have looked at those ones in detail, are not clear at all. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't help. Well, it doesn't help they were in Latin. I can more or less pick my way through that, but I haven't really tried to mostly do it in the original form. Um, but it, it's a thing where that is a, uh, uh, you know, it is presented in something of its time. And that makes it harder, much harder to understand now. So we're, we're dealing with the sort of multi-projection thing. We both, we, we understand a bunch of concepts in our way now, are we, as we look back at what Leibniz did in the late 1600s, um, how do we sort of translate what we know now to what he did then? And then the other problem of the way he represented things in those days, certain aspects of that are kind of incomprehensible to us today. Like a, a classic, even from Alan Turing, uh, you know, you'll find in the writings of Alan Turing something about how uh, you might do this and just work it out on a Brunsviga. What is a Brunsviga? Well, it's a, it was a brand of mechanical computer, which existed in the time of Alan Turing. But for us today, we'd have to go hunt that down to find out what on earth is that, because it's not really a thing. Uh, it's not a thing one, one has heard of today. So, you know, I think this question of when things get developed, they, it is the, the sort of the easiest case to understand is things are developed at a time when the world is ready for them, the world sort of picks them up and there's a continual thread of, yes, we understand that this was important and it goes on being important. And you can kind of see, oh yes, this person originated it. Nobody stole it from them, whatever. This is, um, uh, this is the thing, so to speak. But there are other cases where there are things invented before their time. I think I might say that I personally have probably done quite a lot of that, um, where the world isn't quite ready for it. And when the world kind of finally says, oh yeah, we understand what that is. Uh, it's, 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 it's many years after the original invention and the question of whether people go back and really do the history and figure out how that worked is not, is not clear. I think the other thing that can happen is sort of the core phenomenon of something is identified, but nobody really knew what it was. I mean, this certainly has happened in, in my own work uh, you know, I mentioned this multi-computation thing, but even in the core sort of discoveries of my new kind of science book and the things around it, sort of discoveries about the computational universe of simple programs and the, the very core discovery that even very simple programs can produce very complicated behavior that uh, uh, has these features like computational irreducibility and so on. This idea that even very simple rules can produce very complicated behavior, I have tried quite hard to do the history of that and to understand the precursors of that idea. And there are many, but they weren't, that idea wasn't, people didn't wrap their arms around that idea. So for example, people knew that prime numbers had kind of a random distribution of values, but people like Gauss and Riemann and so on, they just said, well, that's kind of a nuisance. What we really care about 
is the thing that we can do some kind of mathematical analysis on the regularity of the primes, not these random fluctuations that we can't really understand. Uh, similarly, digits of pi. People knew that the digits of pi were kind of random. Like John Venn, inventor of Venn diagrams, wrote this book in the 18, mid 1800s, I think, in which he has a rather lovely picture, which may be the very first picture of a random walk and you know, drawing a two-dimensional random walk. And how does he generate the, the, uh, the, the directions for the random walk? He uses the digits of pi. So he's very well aware of the fact that the digits of pi seem random, but he doesn't make anything of that. He's just like, well, it's just a thing. The digits of pi are random. There's no kind of implication for, for example, the natural world. When you look at the natural world and you see a lot of apparent randomness in the natural world, why is there apparent randomness? Is it like the digits of pi? Is it something different? People didn't internalize that idea. And it took basically a, a long side road of understanding things from a computational point of view and doing actual computer experiments and so on of, of things that I did um, to, to get back to that idea, even though that idea was in a sense hiding in plain sight. And um, the... Uh, uh, so those are, those are some examples of places where until you have the big conceptual framework, you don't get to understand that there is really a thing there. Another good example of this is fractals. The, I was curious, when was the first kind of example of a nested pattern produced? I think the answer is around uh, 1208 AD, uh, done by a, a family of mosaic layers called the Cosmati. Um, and you know I found the place in the uh, city called Anagni, um, Anani, I don't know quite how it's pronounced in, um, in Italy, where there is a, you know, a crypt to the church. And you can actually see sort of because it's a mosaic, which has survived for these last 800 years, you can kind of see the, uh, the mosaic layers trying out different kinds of things. And eventually they get it and they get this nested pattern. That nested pattern was sort of invisible to people for hundreds of years in the sense that, yes, it was a nested pattern. It kind of looked cool. But when art historians wrote about these mosaic uh, works, they would talk about the representational art of lions and all this kind of thing. But when it came to this nested pattern, which was certainly something you hadn't seen elsewhere, just ignored it, didn't even mention it. There wasn't a conceptual framework available for people to say, oh yeah, that's a nested pattern and to describe it as a matter of art history and things like this. And in fact, in the, in the case of, of fractals and so on, the um, in the early 1900s, people like uh, Koch, um, what was his first name? Helmut von Koch, maybe, um, of the Koch curve. And uh, well, people like Cantor, a little bit less obviously geometrically, were creating these things that they were doing largely as sort of counterexamples to continuity claims and calculus of having these sort of arbitrary, arbitrarily rough surfaces and so on. But those weren't really a thing. They were just, oh, that's a random example. The, you know, the Hilbert curve, space-filling curve, the piano space-filling curve. These were just random pathological examples. There wasn't a, a big theory, a big idea about that that would cause people to say, oh yes, these people discovered fractals, so to speak. And then when Benoit Mandelbrot came along, uh, well, in the 1970s primarily, uh, that's kind of a funny story because uh, Benoit, who I, who I knew reasonably well, um, I would say, uh, although I'm not sure that we necessarily, uh, well, I, I would say um, 
let's say I was a fan of him, but I'm not sure he was a fan of me. Um, but uh, the um, uh, he had uh, well, he had kind of a curious history because he had been, uh, you know, he'd grown up in uh, originally Poland, then France, and um, uh, he'd kind of gone through the French sort of very mathematically uh, er rigorous education. And he'd then gone off and really gone into applied mathematics and aerodynamics and all kinds of things like that, um, rather than going in the French, very pure mathematics kind of tradition, although he'd been sort of trained in that. And then he wound up just doing a whole sequence of sort of applied math kinds of things, um, eventually getting very involved in studying power laws and different kinds of things, and was interested in things like the Zipf power law for the frequency, you know, that the nth most common word in English has frequency roughly one over n. Uh, the um, um, uh, person called Zipf, who was a longtime professor at Harvard, actually, in the 1930s and 40s, had uh, wrote this book called The Principle of Least Effort, which was a book that uh, purported to give sort of a general quantitative theory of lots of kinds of things in social science and lots of sort of, it was an early power law chaser. Um, but anyway, Benoit Mandelbrot got involved with that and um, somehow through that, well, we got involved in language translation and then wound up at IBM where he worked for many years. Um, but he was sort of a, a power laws, a fine power laws and things. And he wrote this book uh, that was in French, I think, uh, sort of a precursor of his book about a very famous book from the 1978 or so about fractals. And then I think his publisher, uh, his American publisher, W.H. Freeman and Company, um, were like, ah, this book isn't that exciting. You know, it's kind of like, it's just a bunch of power laws and so on. Can't you spruce it up somehow? And that was what I think led to, uh, particularly Benoit uh, tapping a person called Dick Voss, who was a physicist at IBM at the time and saying, hey, can you make some pictures of all this stuff? And that was how this eventually very richly illustrated book about fractals came to be with all of these elaborate pictures. And upon seeing these, once you'd started doing this, you know, he kind of just made these pictures of everything and they were very, very uh, engaging pictures and could connect this kind of rather kind of typical applied math. We just got a, a you know, a, a curve with a bunch of numbers in it um, kind of thing to this very visual thing. And that really led to this kind of whole idea of fractals. And then one could go back and see, well, all these things that people had constructed and Benoit did that, of, of go back and see all these things people had constructed in the early 1900s, which were, you know, counterexamples and calculus now had a life as part of this sort of paradigmatic idea of fractals and so on. So, you know, it's complicated when things happen relative to sort of the, when the conceptual framework gets developed and so on. Now, you know, there are other cases, I think uh, the, the, the person who asked this question originally mentioned Rosalind Franklin. I, I don't know all of the history of this. Uh, I can tell you my impression, and this is what I get for, for trying to do all of these things without ever looking anything up and just doing everything from memory. But my impression is uh, Rosalind Franklin was involved in the whole 1953 DNA uh, discoveries of, of um, Jim Watson and Francis Crick and so on. But she was, she'd worked in, in London and she was an X-ray crystallographer, I believe. Um, and the first question was, what is the shape of, you know, what is the structure of DNA? 
And you find that out by making, doing x-ray crystallography. And I believe that she did very um, meticulous x-ray crystallography, um, crystallizing DNA, making x-ray crystallographic images of it. But the problem with x-ray crystallography is you're kind of like getting a shadow of the structure of a molecule. And you, you're kind of getting this, well, it's actually more like a Fourier transform of the structure of the molecule. And it's not unique. You're kind of projecting this, the structure of the molecule into this X-ray crystallography image. And that means that you know, there are many, many possibilities for what the molecule actually might look like. And it's sort of a puzzle to figure out what does the molecule actually look like given that this is the X-ray crystallographic result. My impression is she got the X-ray crystallographic result and, and Watson and Crick did the thing with, you know, making the Meccano model and so on to figure out, well, a double helix would be the thing that would give that X-ray crystallographic result. And they couldn't have done that without the work that Rosalind Franklin did. But the question of where's the big, you know, where was the big bang? You know, in the end, the big bang was realizing, again, something which had been suggested by other people. I think George Gamow, maybe a physicist who was also involved in the, the big bang theory to, to, to just... Uh, bring that together. Um, I think maybe, maybe he was later suggesting this, I'm not sure who exactly suggested the idea that, that there would be something digital in DNA, but that was something that Watson and Crick sort of brought together with the extra crystallographic results. And then the realization that a double helix that could, could kind of zip apart and zip together again and so on, could be the thing that actually was the carrier of genetic information. So it's a complicated thing, you know, what there are, that you need a, a particular thing that was a good piece of science. You needed that to be able to make the next conclusion that ended up being the conclusion that really had the big, big oomph to it. I think there are plenty of other cases that one could start describing in the history of science where it's complicated what people did and how people recognized what they did. One that I studied a lot uh, at the end of last year was Moses Schoenfinkel, who in December 7th, 1920, uh, announced these things called combinators. Well, combinators turn out to be sort of the seed that has led us to symbolic computation to, uh, and were sort of the first really formal concrete example of universal computation. They're also super hard to understand. Even a hundred years later, it's really a brain twisting exercise to understand combinators. And at the time, Schoenfinkel's work largely vanished without trace. They were sort of discovered, rediscovered by a person called Haskell Curry, who made a whole career out of it. Um, I, I would claim that Haskell Curry didn't really get the full significance of Schoenfinkel's work, at least not for many, many years. And so that was a case where, where Schoenfinkel had, had just had, had created this great thing, but somehow, and, and the paper that he wrote about the thing is actually very clear. It's actually a very well-written, uh, well-presented document, um, but it was just a thing not in its time, and it was very hard for people to understand it, and, and people didn't, um, and, and so that, that kind of thing can happen. I suppose I'm also reminded of um, uh, a person called Stuckelberg, who is, is sort of often uh, the person who is, people talk about um, uh, inventor of many things around quantum field theory and many kind of Feynman diagram-like things and so on. I, I never met him. He was a, uh, although I could have done, um, he was kind of a wild character from all accounts uh, coming from some um, 
kind of um, uh, I don't know what it counts as some some sort of pseudo royal family type type thing in, in Europe, uh, maybe of some small country, and had a rather exotic kind of um, uh, presentation of himself, and also I think had some uh, sort of psychiatric issues that took him out of action for some part of his life, but. Um, uh, the Baron Baron von Stuckelberg, right, was the the um, um, uh, people will say that uh, you know he discovered this and that and the other thing, particularly around quantum field theory. I've not really gone and, and investigated that to know, um, and I think uh, uh, you know it, it, one of the things to to be clear about the way that sort of science progresses and people remember who who invented this or that thing. There are a couple of things to say. First of all, there's where does the big conceptual framework come from? Where does who really understood that and understood that with clarity and who explained it? Those are some things. Then when there are sort of point discoveries, like you discover a particular thing, you know, a particular axiom system for this formal system, whatever, a particular thing like that. Um, those are things which are point discoveries, which typically have a point discoverer, so to speak. Sometimes there are things like, like one of the things that I'm always somewhat amused by is that, you know, with our Mathematica system and so on, endless, endless discoveries have been made with it. But, and probably those discoveries would not have been made if it didn't exist. But yet it is basically just part of the infrastructure. And those discoveries, even though it may have been very easy, even though it may have taken only an hour to do the computation necessary to make some discovery, given that you already had Mathematica, it's in the kind of the, the value system of science. It's like, well, it's just the infrastructure and the discovery is the important part. So it's, it's kind of a complicated thing to, to sort of know all of this. And one of the things that happens in science is it is, a, it is an area of uh, some good ethics and some very poor ethics. Um, and, you know, it is, not at all uncommon that sort of stealable discoveries will be stolen, so to speak. Um, and certainly I've experienced that a bunch of times in my life. The, um, where it's one thing, if it's a big conceptual framework, it's like, it's, it's way too big a thing to sort of handle and, and maybe somebody will try and, you know, uh, I don't know, rename it in their own uh, whatever, but, but it's generally, Conceptual frameworks, they take a long time to build, they take a long time to absorb. It's different from sort of point discoveries where it's like, oh, as soon as you know the discovery, you are off having made the discovery. And so that, that gets more sort of scurrilous, I would say, in science with, with some rather depressingly high frequency. But in any case, all right, let's see. Many questions here. Um, there's probably more to say about that, but uh, there's a question here from Parmenides, a uh, more specific question about, um, um, uh, let's see, about history of computer algebra and so on. Asked, did I meet uh, Martinus Veltman? Did I use his algebra system, Skonskip? Uh, was I associated with any of the other computer algebra systems like Reduce, Lamb, Sheep, Cadabra, and so on at Cambridge? Well, let's see. So yes, I absolutely knew Tini Veltman um, and I even wrote a, a post about him uh, when he died last year. Uh, it was a person who um, had been a physicist who needed a tool. He needed a, a computational tool 
and he built this uh, early computer algebra system that had the sort of peculiar distinction of being written in the assembly language of a, of a, a CDC series computer and having mnemonics that were in Dutch and so on. So not exactly tops in terms of user friendliness, but very good in terms of, of speed. Actually, when I was first building SMP, the forerunner to Mathematica and Wolfram Language, um, I went to visit Tini Veltman in uh, Utrecht. This must have been 1979, probably. Uh, maybe 1978, I'm not sure, around that time. And um, sort of tried to get tips from him for how to build a, a computer system. And uh, he gave me some good tips and a lot of pretty, in the end, uh, let's say tips that didn't work anymore. Like one of his tips was floating point arithmetic is so much faster on computers. Do everything with floating point arithmetic uh, and back convert to rational numbers at the end of the computation, because you can just zoom forward by using the efficient floating point arithmetic of computers. That was true of the specific scientific computers that he used, that they had fast floating point arithmetic. It wasn't true of all computers. And boy, was it a mess to represent, as we did in SMP for a while, at least rational numbers, small rational numbers as floating point numbers, and then go back and rationalize them at the end. That was a, a teeny Veltman idea, which I would say did not work out terribly well. I, I might say that in terms of those kinds of things, when you're dealing with uh, results about exact numbers, like square root of two plus square root of three plus whatever, one of the things that's kind of funky is one knows that in principle, it's possible to sort of decide whether some combination of radicals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is equal to zero. It's not an undecidable question. It's not something where there could be an infinite length of proof required to figure out whether this whole combination of square roots and cube roots and so on is equal to zero. But the actual procedure uh, due to Alfred Tosky for, um, uh, for unraveling those things, um, that's essentially Tosky's decision procedure for for uh, uh, equations over the, over the reals and complexes from the 1940s, I guess. Um, uh, but his actual procedure is, is incredibly inefficient to implement. But one thing we've done over the last, I don't know, 25, 30 years is um, turns out you can just blast your way through using floating point arithmetic in much the way that Tini Veltman suggested with rational numbers, you can blast your way through and get to the answer so long as you can have theorems that basically say, this number has to lie within this interval in this particular place and so on. And that's kind of how we do those kinds of, uh, of computations with great efficiency. So in a sense, that's an example of Tini Veltman's idea, but applied in a somewhat different domain uh, where it's uh, a little bit less, more controlled than just saying every rational number in the system is going to be really floating point underneath. Now, um, uh, did I use Skip? And I'm not pronouncing it very well because I don't have a good Dutch uh, uh, pronunciation capability. Um, I never used it seriously. I mean, I, I certainly studied it and played with it, but I never used it seriously. There were, so one collection of computer algebra systems was sort of initiated around 1962 by a single meeting between three people at CERN. That was Tini Veltman, um, uh, Tony Hearn and uh, Mike Levine. And Tony Hearn went on to develop uh, Reduce, which was, he had been sort of in the Stanford orbit in the John McCarthy, who was the creator of LISP in that kind of orbit. 
and Reduce was developed in Lisp. Um, Tony Home was at University of Utah for a long time and then wound up, I think, at the Rand Corporation in Santa Monica. Um, and uh, he, um, uh, that was, and Reduce was, um, was probably the best distributed of these early computer algebra systems. Um, and uh, uh, I did use Reduce. Um, I used it actually on a computer in, well, it was at the Rutherford Lab in England. Um, and I think um, that must have been 1976 or so. Uh, and in any case, that was, um, uh, and Tony Hearn, I think, subsequently had involvement in the, in the early ARPANET development and, and other kinds of things in the sort of computer area. Um, I, be, I believe he's still alive. I exchanged email with him within the last uh, year or two. Um, and uh, so he was the creator of Reduce. Now, some of these other programs um, that you mentioned, like Sheep, um, I, I don't know Lamb, I, and I better do. I have uh, Sheep was a program for general relativity. Uh, I think it was done by a person called Ray Denverno, if I'm not mistaken who I think, uh, who I certainly met, who was in Southampton at one point, um, and I think was, uh, I guess that was developed in, in Cambridge, um, and uh, it was around the, the, the CAMEL program, C-A-M-A-L, which somehow is a, one of its derivatives is the CAMEL now, this is where I might get, be getting confused because there was CAMEL, which was a computer algebra system that was particularly aimed at tensor computations. This was a system built in the probably late 60s, early 70s in Cambridge, and CAMEL and SHEEP were somehow related. Um, and uh, they were built for doing mostly tensor manipulation general relativity, um, but there is also CAMEL, C-A-M-L, as opposed to C-A-A-L, which is also built in Cambridge, and which, which then has become OCaml, which is a kind of functional programming kind of thing that's a little bit like Haskell. And I think the um, uh, probably these are those two are both derived from ML, which was a an early uh, kind of uh, principled um, sort of denotational semantics based uh, functional language. Um, which I don't think was ever particularly practical and which then sort of spun out um, Haskell. And I think the CAMEL, which confusingly I think is not related to the CAMEL, C-A-M-A-L, um, although they were both originating in the same place in, in Cambridge. Um, those systems uh, really didn't intersect much with any of the general purpose uh, computer algebra kinds of things. I think... Um, uh, a person named John Fitch, uh, who was at University of Bath for a long time, um, was involved with CAMEL in Cambridge, and I think subsequently was also involved with Reduce. Um, so maybe there's a connection there. But these are things where the, the sort of the real thrust of those systems was you've got these big kind of, you've got polynomials and things like polynomials and things where essentially the algebra is the bookkeeping. You're keeping track of all these tensor indices and so on. Back in those days, things like the contraction of two tensors, you've got two Riemann tensors, R, R mu nu, alpha beta or something, and another R, whatever, and you're contracting these Riemann tensors you know, using all the symmetries of the indices, the Riemann tensors and so on. That's a lot of complicated bookkeeping. And back in the day, there weren't very streamlined algorithms known for that. I mean, I, I certainly imagined 
uh, from the late 1970s, I was interested in those kinds of questions. And my immediate sort of thought was, this is some graph theory problem. You know, knitting together tensor indices like that is sort of a problem of graph theory. And there's got to be a graph theoretic way to sort of analyze that. That was a time when it wasn't yet as well understood. Uh, NP completeness had been sort of invented around 1970. And it was sort of emerging that there was this sort of class of problems that were equivalent difficulty and so on. And many of those were graph problems, but that was something not, not well understood, at least not by me. Um, and I think what subsequently has come out is that it's possible to use efficient graph algorithms to kind of unscramble tensors and things. None of that was known to the early computer algebra systems. They were really doing this kind of thing in a very brute force kind of way. Now, should they have known? Um, I think people like Roger Penrose had started to invent kind of graphical notations for tensors uh, back in the 1960s and early 70s, but I don't think there was a crossover between that those inventions and the kinds of things people were doing in sort of the practical computer algebra of general relativity. There, there could have been, but I don't think there was. Um, and in fact, I really wasn't aware of, of the graphical notation for tensors. Um, uh, it's only very recent times I've really come to care about this stuff. Um, so, you know, I, I can't, uh, I can't uh, make a connection there. Let's see. Um, this question from Parmenides. What computer language was I using when I was doing early particle physics research? Um, so uh, the first language I used was a, a assembler called SIR, S-I-R, which was the assembler for a machine called the Elliott 903. And it was pretty painful to write stuff in. I then um, uh, used Fortran a bunch. Uh, was probably Fortran, wasn't yet Fortran 77 because it was earlier than 1977. It was Fortran 66, which was very traditional Fortran. Uh, used on mostly an IBM mainframe computer and then a, a CDC 7600 computer, as I recall, uh, which was a sort of more scientifically oriented compute, large uh, mainframe computer. Then I also used, um, uh, for some things, I used a whole bunch, this is still solidly 1970s. Um, I used, well, I used to use a HP um, a pen plotter kind of desktop calculator computer type thing, which was, I guess, had some variant of basic um, as its language. Um, and it had the nice feature that it actually had a built-in pen plotter and you could make, make graphs and things with it. Um, it was sort of the best way to make graphs because in those days, what you got back from your sort of running your card deck on a mainframe was a printout from a line printer, which didn't have nice pictures in it. The only way you'd make pictures is with on something like a tectronic storage scope. So there was this uh, way of, of, of writing data that was, I guess that was when things got a little bit more interactive. You still had a, um, uh, you're still using uh, VDUs, visual display unit um, uh, displays. Actually, now that I think about it, I'm not completely certain that the term VDU is an American computer term because I used that term when I lived in the UK. Um, but uh, a, uh, um, a, a cathode ray tube, um, display terminal in which all that it can display is characters. It just had an electron beam that had a, 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 um, a kind of a, a metal plate that had the shapes of characters. And depending on where the electron beam was deflected, it would paint one character or another character onto the phosphor on the, on the actual display screen. And so that was the primary way that you interacted with computers was through a, a teletype 
you know, textual terminal. When you wanted a, a graphical display, there was sort of a different technology of these tectronic storage scopes uh, that they had sort of started life as oscilloscopes, but they were storage in the sense that you would uh, you know, get this picture and back in the day, they were probably um, uh, storing things through just sort of recycling the, um, uh, you know, the data through a cathode ray tube effectively as an analog thing. But by the time this was probably 1977 or so, 1970, yeah, 1977-ish, um, what would happen is that you could get this display on this uh, storage scope and you could press a button and there would be some thermal printer that would print essentially a, a photographic image of that, that display. I mean, if you look at papers from the 1950s where people were trying to get kind of computer displays rendered, like I think Fermi Pasta Unulam in the mid 1950s at Los Alamos, when they were studying nonlinear springs and, and nonlinear oscillators and so on, and eventually discovering solitons and so on. Um, I think the pictures they made were literally photographs from an oscilloscope. Um, they're just photographs of, you know, driving an oscilloscope with a computer and getting the result. I mean, I would say that the top technology for making a plot back in the 1970s was you take a piece of graph paper, you take a pencil, you read off the numbers, you plot them on the graph, you join the points together. That was the, that was the number one technology. So it was a big luxury to use you know, an HP pen plotter or this tectronic storage scope or whatever else. Um, then, well, what I used, uh, so I used Reduce back in 1976. I used Ashmedai in 1977. I used Maxima starting in 1976. Um, I used a bunch of different kinds of systems, but I was primarily using um, uh, as, a, as a kind of base programming language I was primarily using Fortran. 1978, um, I started using C. Um, there was a young then physics graduate student named Rob Pike at Caltech who was like, uh, C is the language of the future, uh, he said. Um, and uh, uh, the, um, in, um, uh, and at the time C had been used uh, in the development of the Unix operating system. And it kind of was a sort of a little bit of systems programming language and so on. It had been developed, uh, used a lot on the PDP-11. I, I never used a PDP-11. I used a VAX-11780, which was the, the kind of bigger grown-up version of the, of the PDP-11. Um, the, uh, but um, I sort of got introduced to C. Now, of course, uh, Rob Pike went on and wrote several books about Unix and so on. And then, of course, having explained to me back in those days that C was the language of the future, Rob developed his own language, Go, um, uh, uh, in, I don't know what it was, 10 years ago now, which has been a, a, a quite successful systems implementation language. I think Rob is always uh, something of a minimalist and um, he liked the minimalism of C and I think he sort of carried that minimalism through to Go. Um, and uh, uh, that, that's um, it's sort of a, that's a, that's a micro footnote to history, but then I started using C um, and that was the implementation language for my SMP system. And it was also the core implementation language for, for Mathematica and Wolfram language. Although we built kind of an extension to that, that was sort of an object oriented extension to C um, that uh, we did because C++ had been invented, but there were not native C++ compilers by 1987. And, um, 
so it was very inefficient to use something like C++. Uh, and so we built our own kind of minimalized memory management oriented version of C um, that uh, we still use um, in, in some parts of the core kernel of our system. So there's a question here. What's my perspective on Theranos? Did I have awareness or skepticism of the company before it collapsed? You know, it's funny because there are places where you're kind of, if you're in the tech industry or whatever else, there are things where you kind of, there's a sort of, osmosis of information about certain kinds of things. And, oh, you've always met the person who did it because there are enough conferences and people get together and so on and so on and so on. You kind of know people who know people. And it's kind of, Theranos was a little odd for me because, because I really didn't know those people at all. And I, I, I had to specifically ask people I knew who were in that sort of space, do you know these people? Oh, yeah, I met them once type thing. It was not a very connected uh, it was not as connected as these things often are. I think that um, my impression is that, um, uh, you know, I, I have no idea what um, the details of all the things that happened or didn't happen or whatever, and, and how much the, how much sort of, it's a reality distortion field that is just what you need to sell investors versus it's a reality distortion field that's just outright sort of malicious stuff. I, I have no idea. I have no, no impression of that. I was, um, uh, I had certainly heard, I mean, the, the rumor was that sort of the big idea of Theranos was a different way of doing sort of calibration and error analysis for measurements. That is, there's sort of a question of you, you know, you get some measurement and you're you're sort of uh, doing some electrochemistry to get some result. And how do you know, you know, what's the error? What does the error distribution look like? That was my was what I had sort of heard was the the secret source, so to speak. Now I have to say, I was um, uh, this must have been oh gosh years ago, five years more than that. Um, uh, Theranos had announced that they were putting some sort of clinics into um, uh, uh, into actual retail type stores. And I happened to be walking down the main, highest, what's it called? The main street in Palo Alto. What is it called? Uh, High Street or something in Palo Alto, actually with a person named Linda Avey, who was one of the founders of 23andMe. Um, and uh, uh, there was a, a sign that literally said, you know, Theranos tests available here. And it was some, was it Walgreens, some other, I forget, one of the, um, uh, one of the, the sort of pharmacy chains. And so I was like, let's go in here. Let's see what's happening. And so we go in there and it's like, there's some poor tech um, kind of in the back of the store. And we're like, okay, you know, probably me, because I'm more forward about these kinds of things. Okay, can I get, you know, a, a, a finger prick and, and get my, my data read and what kinds of data can you read and so on and so on and so on. And this tech was very confused and unimpressive. And when we sort of asked questions about, well, you know, what, what kind of a thing are you going to measure? What's the accuracy? What tests are available, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The story was very amorphous, which certainly didn't encourage me. I mean, you know, sometimes it can be the case that you can have a company that is completely wonderful but by the time its products get out to sort of retail distribution, the people who are dealing with its retail distribution can be, uh, you know, can have little knowledge of, of what the core wonderfulness was. 
but so so it's hard for me to have a, a clear impression. I mean, I would say that in in the world of um, uh, you know in in sort of this question of of due diligence on companies and people come to me all the time with kinds of uh, sort of companies and and ideas and things in, from physics and so on that have a uh, you know where, where people say we've got this miraculous thing that um, uh, uh, you know, works in some miraculous way. And I have to say, I have dug my way through quite a number of those in my life. And often one gets it right, sometimes one doesn't get it right. Um, I have to say, uh, I, uh, I, can, I could describe some of the cases where people sort of said they had some magic thing and I was like, well, I, I don't quite see it and turned out they did. Um, I think I rarely got it wrong the other way around. I would tell one story um, which I suppose I, I can tell. This is from, um, when was it? Probably 1980, perhaps. Um, I had, uh, um, I knew this person who was uh, kind of a physicist who had some investment money and so on connected to him. And there was another physicist um, who was, I think, a particle physicist at CERN who was like, I've invented a, zero flux transformer. And uh, this investment-oriented physicist was asking me, what do you think of this? You know, is this, a, is this a real thing? Is this something that one should pay attention to? And I'm like, my heuristic would be no. The person who's invented it is some particle physicist who works on field theory. This is a transformer, which is a piece of electrical engineering. And why, you know, there's, it's not clear. You know, I could just imagine, you know, physicists are, are famous for just saying, you know, let's come into some field and uh, let's say, you know, ignore everything that's been done in this field, let's do it afresh. Now, that's a double-edged sword because sometimes they're right. Sometimes the physicists can come into a field and say, hey guys, the stuff you've done before doesn't make a lot of sense. We can just redo it all and they do something amazing. And sometimes they come into the field and it's like, actually they're just ignoring all the stuff that's been done and they're just getting it completely wrong. So my heuristic was, yeah, I kind of think that's more likely than not what's going on in this case. Okay, so many, many, many years go by and I didn't, you know, I remember this, this situation that didn't really pay attention. And then I realized many years later that the person, the physicist who had um, uh, done this had indeed gone and started a company and that company had become quite large. And that company was basically making most of the power supplies, most of the transformers for laptops and things like this. And with the kind of, it used to be the case that you have to get a different transformer if you wanted to run with 110 volts versus 240 volts. Um, this person's invention basically got rid of all of that uh, issue um, to, uh, uh, to make it uh, go across those different voltages and sort of became a large company. So this was a case where it was kind of like, does this magic thing work? Well, that was the much younger me was like, eh, I don't think so. And yet it did. And so it's hard to tell. You really have to dig in and see. And, you know, I think that there can be situations in which people, uh, you know, I've been surprised, you know, when I get presented with different kinds of companies and this and that and the other, and, you know, will I be involved or help out in some particular thing? You know, I tend to try and do reasonable due diligence of what's really underneath this. And I have to say, I have been very surprised in some cases that people who 
I think are pretty prominent and et cetera, have gotten involved with things where when you look underneath, it's like, oh my gosh, this is completely crazy. And, and that yet, you know, if you just said, well, who's involved? It would look like, oh, there's a great collection of people involved. And you figure somebody must have done the due diligence on this. And turns out maybe nobody did. And, and so I don't, you know, I don't know how that all played out in, in this particular case. And I, I feel like there's, you know, I have to say, when I first saw these kind of attack, you know, journalism uh, against Theranos, I, I, I was like, why are these people attacking like this? This was, it seemed like a very un, un kind of savory, un, uh, you know, dramatic attack. And I didn't quite get the whole, the whole story of what was going on. Um, and so it's hard for me to parse what, um, uh, what actually happened, no doubt. Uh, well, maybe, maybe not. I don't know whether the um, uh, whether you know in the in the grim uh, sort of details of of legal testimony whether one whether the story will actually become clearer or not. I don't know. I mean, I think it's always one of these things where um, uh, it is certainly the case that there are companies um, where I mean, I can think of several examples where when you first see the company, it's like guys, your technology is just, this technology is awful. And, you know, it's, you're just not going to, it's not going to get there. And then they raise a bunch of money and then they backfill that technology with something quite real after the concept has been created by technology that's kind of crummy and, and held together with, you know, sealing wax or whatever. And then, you know, when it's backfilled, what, what, it, what is produced when it is backfilled is really good. Of course, there are other cases where the technology is kind of cruddy at the beginning and people say, it's great, it's great, it's great. And they, they promote it and they're like, look, it's an amazing thing. And, and it's just all nonsense. And it just, there was nothing there. So it's, it's, a, you know, it's complicated. And I would say that the, the, the social dynamics, uh, the one thing that I would say, I would, I would sort of call out of that social dynamics is my surprise that uh, people don't do uh, people do surprisingly poor due diligence, and I, you know, sometimes it's really hard to do sensible due diligence. I mean, I, I, not to name names, but but you know, there's a there's companies I've been sort of peripherally involved with where it's like a device, and it's like, does the device work, and like, does it do what it says it's going to do? And you can like, well, send me a device. Oh, we can't send you a device because they require hookup to this and that and the other. And it's, you know, story, story, story. Um, and you don't get the device. And, um, the, and then it's like, but look, all these amazing customers are using the device. Does the device work? I would like to, with my own hands, you know, try the device. Because then I'll know if it works or doesn't work. Oh, but why do you want to try the device? Look. We just made all these deals with all these people who are buying devices from us. Okay, you know, that's the question of to what extent do you trust your own judgment about these things? And to what extent do you go with kind of, well, other people think it's good, so it must be good. And as I say, my, my experience has tended to be that this, oh, other think it, people think it must be good, so it must be good, is, uh, uh, has been surprisingly poor. I think the, the one that's in sort of in my crosshairs right now is quantum computing and just what works and what doesn't, because I've had kind of a five-year tale of people telling me, oh yeah, you can run this computation on our quantum computer. 
I've never once yet actually done it. Uh, it's always been, oh, but well, well, it's better to do it on the simulator. Oh, our machine is down today. All these kinds of things. So I have to say that if I were to pick a kind of a crosshairs right now, uh, and I've also worked a lot on the theory of these things, so I have opinions from that, although the connection between the theory and the practice is not 100 uh, percent, at least in my mind. But um, that's a case where I, I think um, um, the uh, um, that's um, uh, that's that. All right. Well, anyway. Um, oh boy, you ask such interesting questions, guys. So I'm 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 I know I have another meeting which actually is being live streamed, but I'll I'll try and do just a couple more here. Um, well, maybe I'll just do one more from Oscar here. I'll leave some others for another time. Um, Oscar asked, what are tensors and where did they originate from? He says, I use them for machine learning, but don't even know what they are. Okay, so tensors originated in the study of stress, stress in materials, solid mechanics. And what are they, how did they originate? And that's why tensors, it's all about tension and it's all about sort of deformation of a, of a solid object and so on. So in terms of what a tensor is, well, back, people didn't really much have the idea of vectors until what, the mid 1800s at least. And the idea that you could package together the X component, the Y component, the Z component, the, um, uh, by the time of, so things like vector analysis, were really developed for purposes of electrodynamics and fluid mechanics. And this idea of sort of packaging things together as the velocity is a vector with three components, um, and, but we can just call it V. That was a thing that people like James Kirk Maxwell, when he wrote his textbook of electrodynamics in the 1890s, maybe 1880s, um, he definitely had that idea by that time. Now that was vectors. Uh, there were, Confusingly enough, sort of a competing technology was Hamilton's quaternions. Because if you want to represent a direction in three-dimensional space, one way you can do it is by giving the XYZ coordinates. Uh, another way you can do it is by using quaternions where you have not a complex number, not a number with a, 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 a real part and an imaginary part, but in addition to a one and an I, you also have a J and a K. And the algebra of quaternions was developed by um, uh, William Rowland Hamilton, uh, who famously, when he invented them, you know, was like, I just had this great idea. And uh, when he was out walking or something, and he carved them on the side of some bridge somewhere in Ireland, where I think they are still to be seen. Um, but it's like, uh, I usually carry a little piece of paper in my pocket. And of course, by now I have, a, you know, a, a smartphone and all those kinds of things. So the idea that one came up with on one's walk uh, for me, it would just be on my little piece of paper or something, or I might send myself email or something like that. But for William Rowan Hamilton, his best way was carve them on the side of a bridge with a stick or something, I suppose. But um, in any case, quaternions was sort of a competing technology for vectors, which didn't really win out. Um, uh, they're still used, they're actually perhaps in some ways increasingly used for representing 3D rotations for purposes of, of computer graphics and things like that. But for many purposes, vectors are a much cleaner idea because a vector is in general, not just in three dimensions, it's just a list of things. For example, a list of numbers in any number of dimensions, that's a vector. 
So then what about matrices? So matrices today seem like a very obvious idea. A matrix is a list of lists, let's say, or a matrix is something where there are numbers and every number has an IJ, has, a, has an X coordinate and Y coordinate in this, in this grid. Matrices are an obvious idea, but they weren't an obvious idea historically. They were, I think, invented by Arthur Cayley in the 1870s, maybe. Um, Arthur Cayley was a mathematician who was deeply involved in things like group theory and so on. And he invented matrices, I think, as part of the theory of invariance and all these things about polynomials and when polynomials are uh, invariant under transformations and a whole, and the theory of determinants was part of this because to make a determinant, there's an easy way to sort of package that as matrix. So matrices were a comparatively, uh, comparatively recent invention and they were not invented structurally. They were invented for their purpose of use in studying things about transformations of polynomials and so on. The, the structural use of matrices of just, there's an array of numbers and you, know, you can take them as a packaged array of numbers and do things with them. That was a thing that emerged. I don't think that really had emerged strongly until probably until the 1960s, until people were first starting to do linear algebra on computers. I think there were certainly efforts. I mean, people were studying, I don't know, Stan Ulam was at one point studying infinite matrices. Um, and uh, that must have been in the 1930s and 40s, something like that. Uh, so that was a, it was a thing, but it was a much more theoretical thing. It wasn't something where it's like, there's this thing, it's an array of numbers. Uh, you know, you can use it as a packaged array of numbers and, and move it around. Now, tensors, I think, originated in uh, the study of stress and strain. So uh, people, you know, Michael Faraday had invented this idea of fields. The idea that there could be a, uh, for example, for electromagnetic field, that there could be an electric uh, field vector at every point in space. That was kind of a Faraday construction, later sort of mathematicized by people like uh, Maxwell. But this idea of a field um, was then sort of something in, in, in well, the Navier-Stokes equation of fluid dynamics, they date from the 1830s maybe, um, and that was, I don't know how they were originally formulated. They were probably not as cleanly written in terms of vector analysis and, and vectors and so on as, the, as they are today. But sometime around then, the equations of stress and strain were being developed. And the point is that in a, in a fluid, the thing that matters is the velocity. And um, the, um, uh, it's... Um, uh, the question is, so velocity is just a vector. It tells you the fluid is flowing around this way. Okay, when you have a solid object, it's a bit more complicated because you can have a distortion in the solid object. You're kind of twisting a piece of the solid object and or you're, you're putting a force in the solid object. And there's a question of the force in what direction through what surface in the solid object. Because you're, if you're kind of shearing a solid object, it's like you're putting a force in that there's a, a force vector here, but there's a, where is that force acting? Well, it's acting across this plane that is sort of shearing in the solid. And so that led to the introduction of tensors that were uh, representing this kind of tension in a solid, and that was beyond a vector. It was something that had to have more directions in it, so to speak, than a vector has in it. So subsequently, of course, tensors have a very structural character 
which is just in Wolfram language, for example, we make it very clear, a tensor is a list of lists of lists, that's a rank three tensor. You can have in general rank n tensor, which is a list of lists of lists of lists of lists, whatever, recursively n times. That's our modern view of a tensor is just a packaging of a, this sort of uh, rectilinear packaging of numbers. And it is interesting that uh, the, the kind of the, the whole idea of sort of vectors, tensors, and things like that, for example, in computer languages, APL developed by Ken Iverson in the 1960s was sort of a language that took the idea of vectors and tensors very seriously and took the idea that there's a, a single thing, a single variable that can be a vector variable, a tensor variable, et cetera. Um, that was a place where that got taken very seriously. And that was sort of, I think, the origination of many of the kind of uses of vectors. I certainly used the ideas from APL in developing things in Wolfram language um, to do with the, the way that we handle things like vectors and tensors and so on. We're actually about to have another level of innovation in that kind of thing, which is sort of symbolic ideas meets uh, sort of actual structure of those kinds of um, uh, those kinds of things. But, but anyway, so tensors, they're all about tension in solids. And um, it was only subsequently that they were sort of understood as a, as a structural packaging that could be used. I mean, when tensors were introduced, the other big use case for tensors was general relativity and the, uh, and the representation of the structure of space of, the, um, of, um, of curvature in space-time. Uh, the Riemann tensor, needless to say, is named after Bernard Riemann. Um, and he invented that in the study of, in the general study of surfaces and so on in the mid 1800s. But that was then, I don't think anything that exciting happened with it at that time. It was really, well, people like Gauss had also worked on things like that. Riemann, I think, had sort of generalized it and, um, and so on. Um, that stuff and the, and the work by Ritchie also got, um, uh, got really picked up and used in, um, uh, uh, by Einstein in 1915 when he developed general relativity. And I think his friend, um, Michel Bezos was the... Um, was one of the people who sort of introduced him to this whole uh, sort of idea of tensors and so on. Um, and obviously uh, Einstein and David Hilbert were kind of racing for the, the theory. Um, and I guess David Hilbert probably knew about tensors who was a mathematician, probably separately knew about tensors. I don't know that for sure. But Einstein was always fond of saying that, um, uh, you know, the mathematics that he had to do was at the very limit of what he could possibly manage because he'd been sort of trained in mathematics through physics. And of course, tensors hadn't been a thing in physics and he really had to import this mathematics into, into physics. And I kind of feel that way myself in some of the things we're doing in, in our physics project now of importing things from higher category theory and so on, which are things which are sort of at the limit of my mathematical uh, uh, sort of uh, reach. And, um, uh, but they're things which I think can be fruitfully imported into, into physics now. And I feel a kind of a, I, I, I definitely feel what, um, uh, you know, I, I, I know what old Albert was feeling when he was talking about, you know, look, I've got these tensors, they're these wonderful shiny objects in mathematics. And, you know, can I pull them into, can I understand them enough to pull them into what I'm doing in physics? All right, I think I have to run off here. Um, and, uh, I am. Um, thanks very much. Lots of interesting questions. We've got a lot of good ones uh, left for the next um, episode, um, which should be in a couple of weeks. So thanks for joining me. Bye for now.
You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.